Well, good morning. Kelly said she likes to sit on the right. Yeah. I tend to lean right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> she couldn't resist. Well, this is uh, Kelly Block. Welcome here. I'm going to introduce Kelly uh, a little bit more in, in just a minute. And, uh, but first, I want to give a little bit of context uh, to what we're doing here this morning. So I want you to imagine with me for a minute uh, if the scene that would have been there on Palm Sunday, potentially, where you have uh, this excitement in the air, there's this anticipation in the air, you have people waving palm branches, you have a, a celebration going on. People are expecting a king. People are expecting and longing for a Messiah. They're expecting and wanting someone to save them. Uh, and then here comes Jesus, not riding in a black Suburban or something like that uh, with bulletproof glass and a motorcade, but riding in on a, don- on a donkey, on one of the humblest of, of animals. And I would imagine for people it was not exactly what they expected. In some ways, maybe not that inspiring, not what they'd anticipated. Maybe it confused them. Uh, we're not sure. But we know that the kingdom of God is often uh, an upside-down kingdom. It, it feels different uh, than we maybe expect uh, as well, too. And so that's why living out our faith in exile, or at least in this season where we find ourselves increasingly in what feels like exile, living out our faith is so important because our culture that we live in is complicated. The issues are complex, and it can be very challenging. And that's some of what we've been trying to talk about in the series, and, and to feel the tension of it. Uh, within our hearts. And so this week we're going to continue in this series on Opportunity in Exile, but I'm going to do it with the help of my friend Kelly Block, who is an MP in Ottawa with the Conservative uh, Party. Uh, Kelly and Milton, her husband, have been uh, connected to our church for many years. And uh, about 10 years ago, Kelly and I worked together. She was actually on staff here at our church as the director of administration before she went into politics, or at least federal politics. She was already involved in politics even at that time. Um, But Kelly has a deep faith, and she has always loved the church, and she loves serving people in public office. And she's been elected three times now, uh, serving as a member of parliament for the past about 10 years as uh, MP for Carlton Trail, Eagle Creek, riding right here in Saskatoon. So first of all, Kelly, I just want to say welcome. It's Thank great you. to have you here. Thank you. It's very good to be here. So in, the, in this series, uh, we've been walking through Daniel, uh, Esther, Jonah, we've now just started into the first Peter text in the New uh, Testament. And, and each of these texts gives us a bit of a window, a different kind of window, into uh, what it looks like for people living in some kind of exile. And their exile was very different than, in many ways, what we're talking about, but exile all the same in some form. When our Christian faith and our Christian values are kind of being pushed onto the margins and not uh, any longer at the center of society, uh, where they're not respected or valued, and uh, we find ourselves as believers on the margins. And so, as I was thinking about this series and uh, talking it through different people, I wanted to interview Kelly, because I thought Kelly, in a similar way to like Daniel and Esther, is somebody who is actually uh, in the arena of political power, and actually working very close in those uh, places, but also as a believer, wrestling with the question, how do I live out my faith? Uh, in this context. And so that's why I thought it'd be really helpful uh, to connect with Kelly and just have her share some of her experience and her perspective on some of those things. So Kelly, first of all, 
uh, I want you to talk about, and you and I have talked a lot about this, but it'd be helpful just to hear a little bit, what are some of the tensions that you experience as a believer and also as a legislator? Talk about some of those tensions that you feel personally. Sure. Well, I think the greatest tension that probably overarches everything that, that I do as a legislator and a believer is the first, when there is an expectation that one's faith should have nothing to do with your work as a legislator. So perhaps a bit of a misunderstanding in terms of what the separation of church and state is or was meant to look like. And the second would be when the faith community has expectations of what an an elected representative can and should be doing as a legislator. Right. So now that's interesting because I know... Uh, a lot of times you hear that people will say, well, you know, you shouldn't bring your faith into what you do. Like, you've got to separate that totally. And yet I know that if it's truly your faith, that's not possible. Right. And, and just as an aside, a number of years ago when I was in Ottawa one time, and Kelly was giving me a tour through the buildings and, and so on, I, I met with Peter McKay, and I uh, was introduced to him. And mm-hmm. he, I think he was the Minister of Defense at that time. Yes. And he said something to me that was really interesting. He said, we need more MPs like Kelly because she lives out of her faith. And I don't know exactly where Peter is at in his faith, but I, it was really striking to me. So obviously you live your faith out on, in Parliament, uh, in, in, in Ottawa. Talk a little bit about that. How do you live out your faith and, and when it comes to your work in that setting? Sure. Well, I, I have the good fortune of representing a region where my principles and my values closely align with those people that I'm representing and where for the most part... The role of faith in our society is recognized and respected. So I think I, I, I come to Ottawa and I come to issues out of the knowledge that I am, that I am um, speaking um, in line with, with what my, my constituents would have me do. And obviously, I believe that as a, as a person of faith, that um, it's in your DNA and that our lives are a letter. And so I think that's what happens when you, when you go and you live out your faith. It's not necessarily always what you say, but perhaps it's that your life is a testimony. I know that there are people of faith in all political parties. Do you connect with those people of faith in, in different ways across parties? How does that work? Yeah, we do. Um, every week there's a weekly prayer breakfast. And um, obviously when certain issues come up, in the House of Commons, you, you tend to, to have conversations yeah. with colleagues who are like-minded. Yeah. And you said that you also, one of the tensions is that you feel is also the pressure that you feel even from the faith community mm-hmm. to do certain things, to say certain things. Talk a little bit about that. So what comes to my mind would be first that I, I feel like the church is incoherent. And I'll explain that to mean that um, there are many voices represented in the church today. And uh, so, you know, different views on very different issues um, are represented in our churches today. And so you may have individuals that think that you need to be taking a certain stand on an issue and others will think that it needs to look different. And so that's where the tension comes in. I feel that even as a pastor, because I know even in this church setting, people think very differently. They have p- different political ideologies. They have different ideas of what does it mean to live out of faith. So I can understand that to some extent as well, too. We're a diverse people, uh, and yet we're called to live out in faith. 
So um, I know one of the things that you've been involved with that has been meaningful for you is the work that you've been doing uh, as co-chair for CanForb. Uh, let me try to say this. It's, it's the Canadian branch of an international entity, the International Panel of Parliamentarians for the Freedom of Religion and Belief. So talk a little bit about that work and why that's been significant for you. So in June of 2017, IPP4, just call it that, was, um, was created in 2014. And I'm, I guess I was sharing with Bruce the backstory to that, is that it actually was the ambassador for our Office of Religious Freedom that was instrumental in um, the beginnings of IPP4. Um, so in June of 2017, a number of my colleagues met to establish a Canadian chapter of IPP4 as a way of strengthening the, internet, the work that's being done internationally. And it was, it was something that IPP4 was asking of, of different member countries, was to create a domestic chapter. And so we were able to do that. And our purpose is twofold. Uh, the first is to be a point of contact or a place of landing for individuals or delegations who are coming to Canada from other countries, um, specifically for the purpose of talking about religious freedom and freedom from persecution. Um, and, I, and secondly, um, we felt it was important for us to begin monitoring what was happening within our own borders. Canada participates at the international level from a place of strength because we are a country that is known for um, valuing um, and advocating for freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law around the world. And so we, when we are on the international stage and we go to other countries, um, they know that these are the values that we have as Canadians. So I believe that it is extremely important for us to continue to partner with other countries who... Um, might not have those values, often don't have the same commitment to those values that we do. And um, we, I think we recognize that, that place of strength that we come from, but then we also need to recognize um, what we have here in Canada and the fact that we need to stand firm and continue to defend the rights that we have here in Canada. So talk a little bit more about how your work on that uh, committee has helped, or even as you've been listening to this series and have been connect, connecting with this series here over the last number of weeks, how has that even been challenging, your work on that committee challenging, your thinking through this series, and what are some of the things that have kind of arisen for you? You know, it's, it's been a, an interesting series, and it has created some tension for me as, as a legislator. I, I think much of this series has been predicated on the observation that Canada is now considered a post-Christian nation. And that's a shift that's been taking place over the last number of decades, I think, or put another way that our country has, has been secularized. And I think it's important for us to understand the principles of secularism. And um, if it is true, as I have come to understand, that secularism is about respecting others and their faith choices while still honoring your own, and that this is a vital part of maintaining a peaceful, cooperative country, then what we must guard is our freedom of religion. And my concern is that in, in an increasingly secular age, we could see ourselves, and perhaps we are already moving in that direction, where we understand that secularism is freedom from religion. Yeah, let me 
just pick up on that one for a minute because I think that goes to even the whole idea of tolerance and how people sometimes think of what tolerance is. And I've often um, challenged people, well, tolerance isn't actually that we all think alike or that we're all kind of in the same camp. Tolerance is actually when we think very differently than one another, but we actually value and respect other people's perspectives and beliefs and so on. So what you're saying is that this shift is a significant shift and one that we have to guard against and fight for freedom of religion, of all religions, but not from religion. Right. Right? What else would you say about that, just to clarify that? Well, so I think that when we're talking about living in exile, I I think if we believe that um, there are opportunities for a church that finds itself on the margins, I think that's been suggested a number of times over the past series, then we must recognize that where there are opportunities, there are also challenges and threats. And perhaps um, a misunderstanding between freedom of religion and freedom from religion would be one of those challenges or threats. Um, I think the biblical examples that we've been talking about in this series, while perhaps um, we're living in hiddenness at times, they were not passive in exile. And so they recognized the threats and the challenges um, that were part of their times. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go into some of those. Like, for instance, in Esther. Uh, I know in the story of Esther, and, and even you and I have talked about that, it wasn't that Esther was totally passive or in the story, but actually there was even an edict that was put out at the end of the story of Esther to actually defend and fight for your rights and your family and so on. Absolutely. So I, w- I would say that the, the examples that we've been talking about um, did not compromise when it came to their faith. At different times, they had to dig deep and they had to stand up to the laws that had been um, put in place. And, and I think um, that's what we saw with Daniel and that's, that's what landed him in the lion's den. And I think that's why we saw Esther actually going to the king without being summoned knowing that this was putting her life on the line. Yeah. And I think that's one of the tensions that we all feel and we've been trying to kind of bring out in the series. There's, there's one thing about what you believe. So there's what is it that you believe, but then it's also now what do you do with that? Like how do you act and live out of that? And that's, I think, where the tension so often comes for us. And, and I think for those in leadership, like when you're in leadership and, and uh, you often have a microphone in front of you in order to say something, you're, you're not just left with the option of just being passive. You actually have to say things and do things, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So you also talked in, in our conversation about a text in Jeremiah yeah. that was significant for you. And yeah. talk a little bit about that and what that text means to you. So it's been one that, I, that has been um, very near to my heart over the time that I've been a member of Parliament. And I think even within the context of the series that we've been studying Um, I would suggest that before we embrace exile, I think we need to have a clear understanding of what that means and really looks like, and that we actually have to count the cost. And I know that with, um, in Jeremiah, the reason why it has um, been so dear to me is, uh, I mean, Jeremiah was one of those prophets during that time, and um, he was complaining to God about what was happening in his life at that time. And and God's answer was, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with the horses? And if you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And as I said, life was extremely difficult despite his love and obedience for God. And, um, 
You know, when, when he cried out to God for relief, God's reply was, in effect, if you think this is bad, how are you going to cope when it gets really bad? And so I think we need to ask ourselves um, as a church, how did we get here? How did we go from being a Christian nation to a post-Christian nation? And are we ready for what's coming if, in fact, we are heading into exile? And so I would, I would also say that I think it is a mistake to believe that a church in exile will be able to exist in the same manner as we do today in a society where the law still protects freedom of religion and belief of association. Yeah, so um, we're not in exile yet. We still have lots of freedoms, but what you're saying is to count the cost. It's not that we just sort of passively embrace this exile, but there are things that are worth fighting for, and there are certain freedoms that are are worth fighting for. Now, I I think you've also, in in our conversations, you've made the statement that the church is, in some way, you know, we have contributed to our own exile. We're we're complicit in this somehow. What what would you say to that? And I know this is a dangerous question here, (laughs) but how how would the church be uh, even, we, we need to own some of this in terms of how we've come to the place that we are. What would you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I would start by saying, while I While I believe God is or will be present in exile, um, it may not be the place he wanted us to be. Um, I am not convinced that God engineers exile, and that may just be semantics, because what I would follow that up with is, but more that he allows it as a consequence of perhaps disobedience. And um, neither am I convinced that exile offers greater opportunity. The great, com- the great Commission, the mandate of the church is unchanged um, and will be unchanged in exile. I think it just means that it will take a greater resolve to do that which we have been commanded to do all along. And so I, I guess I would question, is exile ine- inevitable? I think that if we can see that exile is on the horizon, then we possibly should be asking ourselves, can we avoid it? Can we avert it? And, and we have a really good example as part of this series as well um, when we talk about the Ninevites and Jonah. And maybe they are the example we should focus on a little bit more because perhaps the ability to avert exile might be that it, it requires repentance, much like the Ninevites who, when they understood that judgment was coming, they were able to avert it. Um, because they repented. Yeah. And I know sometimes in our conversations over the years, you've, you've sort of lamented that sometimes the church is too silent. And yeah. you would wish, even for those who are part of, uh, who are MPs in Ottawa, they, they would actually long for actually the church to be more vocal at times. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how would you differentiate between the idea of privilege and persecution? And, and those two... Words. Well, they are, they are very, very different um, uh, concepts, I think. But I would agree, as others have observed during this series, that the loss of privilege, such as losing our charitable status as, a, as an organization, is not persecution. But I would suggest that the loss of privilege may be the beginning of persecution, And especially if it's rooted in intolerance. And I think we have examples in our not-so-distant history where we we see a loss of privilege turn into persecution and have devastating results. Mm -hmm. 
Um, for you, when the kingdoms collide, even as I kind of talked in the inter- introduction about Palm Sunday and the, the different kingdoms that were seen there, that are seen in this Passion Week of what people expected, what they wanted. They were looking for a political leader. They, uh, Jesus came in a very different way. He actually went to the cross and died uh, for us. And this incredible picture. So when you, when you experience in whatever way this colliding of kingdoms in, in the work that you do, uh, how do you respond as a follower of Jesus? Hmm. Uh, that's a really good question. And I think, and, and, and this is truly and honestly what I, I have to do on on a, a daily basis and sometimes an hourly basis depending on where I find myself and the conversations that I'm in or the debates that are raging. I, I do have to remind myself of the great commandment to love God, to love others. And, um, and I actually have to repeat in my mind uh, the scripture out of 1 John 4.20 which says, if I say I love God but hate my brother... I'm a liar. And that, and that really is something that I have to remind myself regularly. I, I think what this does is it helps me to stay focused on perhaps being critical of policy rather than reacting to people. And I will let you know that I don't always walk that out perfectly. I, I have been known to heckle in, in the House of Commons and, and let some of my frustrations show but more often than not, I think it does stand me in good stead to remind myself that, you know, it's, you know, be soft on people, hard on policy. Yeah. I can really relate to that, Kelly. I have to pray, God, help me to love these people even when I come to church as well, too. So it's, it's very similar. Uh, um, but let's connect a little bit more to what we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday event. And it's recorded in the Gospels, in all four of the Gospels, in different ways. Uh, in Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, it records uh, some aspect of this Palm Sunday event. Uh, I find that I'm usually drawn to the one that we're kind of focusing on today in Luke 19. Um, and it, it has some unique uh, pieces in it that aren't necessarily in the other accounts. And in different translations of the Bible, it has a different title on that section. Some call it Jesus' triumphant entry, or else it says Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And so it's this incredible uh, kind of celebration, triumphant kind of section uh, but then uh, it, it says this, and I'll just read a portion in verse 36 uh, to 42 of, of Luke 19. It says, As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And in that little window of where there's this celebration event going on, and yet Jesus is weeping for this city, and the contrast of that has always really kind of stood out for me. The broken, brokenness that Jesus had and the broken heart for, for the people and what it is that they were missing, the, the things that they were looking for to save them, of what could save them. And, and yet it was Jesus. It was Jesus in the presence of whatever circumstances. Peace, peace is not the absence of conflict, but peace is the presence of Jesus. And, and so that's what he was kind of lamenting. 
uh, and how they were uh, missing it. So this is, a, to me, a very complex event of clashing kingdoms, clashing expectations, and, and what they put their hope in. But Jesus knew that to transform the human heart that you needed to change the human heart, to transform mm-hmm. humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about that text in the Palm Sunday event, in this clash of kingdoms, um, uh, and also this week that is to follow, what, what is it that stirs within you about this text and about uh, this Passion Week and Palm Sunday specifically? Sure. Well, I think, you know, what you've said about this passage and and the clashing of kingdoms is really important. And as you pointed out, it appeared to be a, a triumphal entry, but there was this huge disconnect between Jesus and what he understood um, to, to be happening and, and what was going to unfold and what the people understood to be happening. And I, I think that, you know, we ought not to ever look to governments or um, to kingdoms, the model of kingdom within um, our modern day to, to be the answer. And I, I think that's actually what, what you know, the, the people of that day were doing, and they missed the opportunity that was in front of them. And I think if I could, I would just kind of relate that back to, to my thoughts around living in exile and, and maybe what we're missing today and I want, to, I want to share something with you that um, was brought to my mind last year after Billy Graham passed away. And um, I was able to watch a, um, an interview between him and David Maines, and this was back in 1978. And Billy Graham said this about Canada. He said, there is a spiritual heritage here in Canada. The spiritual groundwork is here. Canada stands in a very unique position If Canada should have a spiritual awakening and a spiritual revival, I think it could lead the world. I think the whole world would look to Canada, and I think Canada could become the world leader in the spiritual dimension. Canada could help lead the world in a spiritual awakening. And even in his salute to Canada on June 20th, 1981, Pierre Elliott Trudeau said this, The golden thread of faith is woven throughout the history of Canada from its earliest beginning up to the present time. And so I think what we need to do is, is reflect on maybe what is in front of us, what the, the deep, rich um, thread of faith that, that we have had the privilege of growing up um, with here in Canada and, and not be willing to walk away from that too quickly. Not, not, I think we need to see um, where our nation is at, where we've come from. And I think what I find myself asking myself today as a result of this passage and this series that we are in is, uh, does Jesus weep for nations today mm. and weep for a nation like Canada? That's powerful. So Kelly, as we close, what would you, what would you say the role of the church is in a post-Christian society? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't think that the role of the church changes. Um, I think that we are to love God and, and love others and to go into all of the earth making disciples of all nations. Um, however, I think the way the church um, will, will do this um, will change if the law should no longer protect freedom of religion or belief, and more importantly, the freedom to express our faith in the public square. 
So, you know, perhaps we've been living in a bit of a golden age and still are where we have been able to share our faith freely, where the ability to love God and love others and and, um, make disciples has been pretty easy. I know that a pastor, I heard a pastor speak a year ago at a conference that was held in Ottawa, and he made this observation. He said, um, politics is downstream from culture, and culture is downstream from faith. So I think as a church, we have to really take a look and understand what our role is in shaping culture. And uh, Bill Heibel said, uh, the local church is the hope of the world, and I believe that very strongly. Well, that that quote that you said is, is really powerful, and it really puts a lot of influence and impact on the church where if if the culture is actually reflective and it's downstream of the church and then politics is even downstream of culture that puts a pretty high role on the church to continue to be the church in the most effective way possible Absolutely. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so kelly i want to thank you for uh sharing uh here today um one of the things that we've been wanting to do in this series is to actually wrestle with the tensions and, and really feel it internally. So if you've been feeling internal angst in this series, then it's been effective <laughs> um, because we want to feel that. Not everybody in our church feels the same about how do we actually be the church. Even, even as Kelly and I talk about things, we wrestle through things and, and we see some things differently. We see a lot of things similar, but some things differently too. And that's okay. And it's, it's part of uh, understanding that we all have a role to play. But what I hear from you, Kelly, and I think for all of us, is um, we don't want to just be passive and just kind of passively embrace the trajectory that the church is going. There are things that are worth fighting for. There are things that are worth standing up for. There are things that are worth uh, speaking into. We need leaders who are serving in government office. We need people who are serving in places of leadership in our society. Mm-hmm. And we need to pray for those mm-hmm. people. We need to pray for you and mm-hmm. others uh, mm-hmm. as, as MPs. Uh, and so those, to me, are some of the, the takeaways from today. Um, so any other last things that you'd want to say to close? You know, I would share one last thing with you, and, and it's something that I have felt quite strongly um, over the last number of years as I've been serving as a parliamentarian. And I, I think it was summed up really well in something that Anne Graham shared at her father's funeral when she said this, and I'll quote her, I believe this, and she was referring to her, father's death. I believe this is a shot across the bow from heaven. And I believe God is saying, wake up church. Wake up world. Jesus is coming. Yeah. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for Um, the power of your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our peace. I thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control, even at times when the world seems out of control and we don't know what's going on. And yet, Lord, you've called us to be the church. And so, Father, we are struggling with that and we just confess that. Um, Sometimes we're, we're too passive and we don't do or say anything. Sometimes we're, we're shrill and we're screeching at the mountaintops in the wrong way and saying unhelpful things. Uh, sometimes we need to love sacrificially and we don't. Sometimes we, we need to stand up and draw a line in the sand and we shrink back. 
And so, Lord, we confess these things, and we pray that you would help us to be the church in this culture and in this day. Help us to wrestle honestly with what we believe, and also how do we live out of that belief? What are the actions that we are prompted to live because of what we believe and what we see? And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the church. And so, Lord, I I pray for Kelly that you would encourage her and continue to give her boldness uh, as she serves in Ottawa and here in Saskatoon. Lord, we pray for all of our MPs, especially those who are Christian MPs who are trying to live out their faith, people of all parties who are uh, believers and who want to live out their faith in those kind of places. God, would you bless them and encourage them? Would you strengthen them? And Lord, we, we pray for uh, Justin Trudeau as our, as our leader and our prime minister. We pray that you would encourage him and uh, by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to just uh, impact him uh, in his life, I pray. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we would be good stewards of the gifts that you have continued to give us of this freedom uh, that we have here in Canada and help us to be the church that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.